Hey everybody, welcome to Bros, Bibles, and Beers. This is episode 201. Zach, how you doing? Did Scott probate himself? Yeah, he's gone. Andy, how you, how's it going? Vroom! <laughs> now, without Scott, Jeff, how are you? Uh, I'm broke. My kids started volleyball. Oh man. Okay. All right. Well, we can't really talk about any of that. We'll get to some of that stuff later. Totally. Right now, we have an excellent guest, a returning guest, Bonnie Christian. Welcome back to Bros, Bibles, and Beer. Hello. And uh, so you were on episode 90 in 2018 when you wrote A Flexible Faith. And let me tell you, that book, we still will occasionally use that for topics I'll use it with my kids sometimes if something comes up and we can talk about like the different ways people view a, any, any specific doctrine. And we've used it multiple times, either in mm-hmm. private discussions or like, hey, what do you want to talk about tonight on the podcast? We'll, we'll still break that book out from time to time. So mm-hmm. it, it's a, that book has long-term value if, if somebody hasn't, is listening and hasn't checked that out. I'm glad to hear it. It's a uh... The, one of the, one of the things about like my day job about, you know, journalism is that so much of what I write has a lifespan of like two, three days, and then no one ever cares about it ever again. So that is something that is very gratifying about books that people might still care about it, you know, a week, a month, four years later. Yeah. No, that that's great. Also, before we dive into your new book and talk about that, um, in, in just like, in my normal media consumption practices, I, I will frequent reason.com sometimes or, and I, and I stumbled across an article. I don't remember the article, but I recognized the name and it was Bonnie Christian. And at the time I was like, the, the Bonnie Christian that of bros, Bibles and beer fame, like that one. And so, and then I also, I listen occasionally to Scott Horton's podcast and you were just on there and you didn't really talk about this book, but you were dropping some serious foreign policy knowledge that I had no idea about. Like, what's that about? Where's that for you? Yeah. Well, so, um, I am freelance these days and two of my like sort of long-term regular commitments is I usually write, it's a little bit less right now while I'm dealing with like book release stuff, but usually write a piece, an article a week for reason. Um, with a foreign policy emphasis, but not exclusively. They like me to do that, but I'm not like on a strict mandate there. And then I'm also a fellow at a foreign policy think tank called Defense Priorities. And so for them, I do, uh, I write a weekly newsletter now, and then I also write um, up to an article a week for them that they place at various outlets. And so I don't remember what that, I've I've done Horton's show, I want to say twice, and I don't remember if that most recent one was about something I wrote for reason or um, something I wrote through defense priorities, but uh, yeah, foreign policy has always been a big interest of mine. Uh, you know, I mean, it's life and death stuff. So yeah. kind of important. Yeah, for sure. That in addition to Christianity today and what's the name of your blog at Christianity today? Um, the column there is Lester kingdom. Um, and the idea is just, you know, to be focused on, politics, things that concern like society as a whole. Okay, nice. Now, uh, I do hopefully towards the end of this conversation, there is a prayer you have um, towards the back of your new book. Um, 
by Thomas Aquinas. And I literally read this out loud in my truck before coming into Andy's house, the studio. And like, which is no small feat. You got me to pray out loud, which listeners <laughs> to the show know like prayer and me have like a touch and go relationship right now. And, but I actually did it and it's a great, it's an excellent prayer for writing and it equally well, it works for like communicating verbally. So thank you for that. And maybe that's a teaser. We I can, did not know miracles were happening today and you were praying. Wow. That's, ama- <laughs> that's amazing. <laughs> Bonnie brought that out in you. That's good. Yeah. It cracked myself up. Okay. So, we got Untrustworthy, your new book, Untrustworthy, The Knowledge Crisis, Breaking Our Brains, Polluting Our Politics, and Corrupting Christian Community. Um, can you give us the elevator pitch for this book? Okay, so elevator pitch. Um, it is about the sense of confusion and unease that I think a lot of us have when we're trying to engage in uh, the modern media environment, especially, but not exclusively online and in social media. And that uncertainty that we have around what is knowable, what is true, who are trustworthy voices. Um, and then also the, the differences in the way that we're answering those questions, that those lines can cut through families and congregations. And so it, it is a knowledge crisis, but it also becomes very much a, a relational crisis in many cases, um, including in church contexts where in theory we ought to be like united in the mind of Christ, but we're very much not. I think, I think just based off that, as I think about church in general, um, the relational part, uh, I think in America, we just don't have many challenges in our lives, especially uh, if you're in an affluent area or middle-class area, you, you you don't come across any type of conflict. And just with that thought, uh, and I mean conflict in a way that uh, just creates an earthquake through um, a divide through um, people's lives, families' lives. And Wait, are you saying rich people don't have problems? No. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but are you saying we, that we don't? No, no, no. We don't have. We don't have to deal with what we dealt with with the pandemic. Uh, that type of, that type of thing, or just going back and uh, wait. We have to deal with homosexuality in the church. Like, do, do we? Are we really doing this, or or something along those lines? Where that ah, doesn't really divide us. But the last two or three years, there was a huge division, and people really never dealt with that big of a challenge in their life where, you know, you fell on a political side, you felt like, well, my religion is my politics. And and then there's people that were the other side. It just became a, it became chaos and, and really nobody knew what to do. And they're also being fed through social media an abundant, uh, way too much information that any human should ever take in. And it just became chaos. So to your thought that that's uh, strikes a chord in just reflecting on the last few years. I mean, there's the civil war and then the civil rights movement. Those are two things where people are kind of divided on too. Oh yeah. When Southern California was such a great, was such a booming place. We do, we seem to, well, we definitely romanticize the past. And then, so each problem big or small currently seems to take out, take on an outsized uh, meaning and importance for us, depending on what the thing is. Yeah. I also think that a lot of this, these problems in particular 
sort of caught people by surprise. You know, we're still so early in the internet age and even the cable news age is only like 10 years older. We're talking about two, three decades here. And so I think for a lot of people and, and thinking back to like the early years of Facebook when it was all in Twitter and like the, the 2008 election, and it was also optimistic of like, you know, this is going to help us connect with people and we're going to do a better democracy and on and on. And then so quickly it all went south and just became so embittering. And so I think, you know, there have obviously been plenty of deep divisions among Americans and among in the American church in the past. But I think this one sort of snuck up on us for a lot of people. We, we just didn't think it would turn out like this. Yeah. There there's a, for every example of Megan Phelps, I don't know if any of you guys know mm-hmm. who she is. She was one of the daughters uh, or granddaughters of the founder of Westboro Baptist church who now, I don't know if she's an atheist or agnostic, but she slowly through Twitter and interactions of people like, making good arguments on why Westboro Baptist might not have the version of truth she thought they did. Um, and if people don't know, they're the people that protest soldiers' funerals and God, right. hate, God hates <clears throat> fags, like all those super offensive. And I think they only have a membership of like 30 or 40 people in the church, but they make a way outsized influence on, on media, noisy. which actually you talk about in the book and, and, uh, I reread a Jonathan Haidt article on why the past 10 years of American life have been uniquely stupid. That was in the Atlantic talks about similar things about, and I have a quote, if you guys don't mind, maybe we can react to it about, uh, well, I'll just read the quote and let's see, see where it goes. Um, the dark guns of social media give more power and voice to the political extremes while reducing the power and voice of the moderate majority the Hidden Tribe study by the pro-democracy group More in Common surveyed 8,000 Americans in 2017 and 2018 and identified seven groups that shared beliefs and behaviors. The one furthest to the right, known as the devoted conservatives, comprised 6% of the U.S. population. The group furthest to the left, progressive activists, comprised 8% of the population. The progressive activists were by far the most prolific group on social media, had shared political content over the previous year. The devoted conservatives followed at 56%. These two extreme groups are similar in surprising ways. They are the widest and richest of the seven groups, which suggests that America is being torn apart by a battle between two subsets of the elite who are not representative of the broader society. What's more, they are the two groups that show the greatest homogeneity uh, in their moral and political attitudes, i.e., uh, echo chambers. Mm. All right. Balls in the air. Who wants to grab it? Um, I can, I mean, I think height is great. And it was a, a compelling article. I think he's, he's right. Um, you know, in the interpretation of that study, that social media does encourage the most and favors the most extreme voices because, you know, it, it, it's all based on, um, not just the number of accounts, but the number of sessions and how much time you're spending on there and how many things you're clicking on. Um, and it, you know, even, even changes that are intended to improve things and calm things down. Like in recent years, Facebook has tamped down on some of the political content and started disfavoring it in their algorithm. But what that's meant in practice is that links that take you off their site to even like very legitimate news sites and, and opinion pieces 
are disfavored. So it's very hard for most media outlets to get traction on Facebook anymore, unless they're those really big heavy hitters or really, really inflammatory. Um, what still gets plenty of traction is like political memes, which are even worse quality, right? But it's a picture, not a link. And you look at it on Facebook, not off Facebook. So it still flourishes. Um, I also think though, that you can view those stats in a more encouraging sense, which is that, I like it. Um, it. you know, a lot of what I'm writing about is like a middle to upper middle class college educated problem. This is not everybody in the country. Like a lot of people are way more normal. They're, you know, not as online. They probably do spend too much time on social media because everyone does now, but it's probably a little bit, um, it's less politically intense and they're, yes, they're seeing that stuff from those more extremist voices, but they are probably not paying as much attention to it. And they're probably not sharing it because they're not in those camps. And so, um, yeah, you know, it is good to recall that that 6% and that 8% are still only 14% of the country. And there is, you know, that other, what is that? 86% who are comparatively normal. Yeah. It's related. One of the things you talk about is the perception gap, I think. And I think this is related. I didn't, I should have mm-hmm. like wrote down a quote, but what is the perception gap? If you don't mind I think so it's, it's, it's a study in a couple of years ago, I can find it, 2019, um, which basically found that people, especially like political partisans, people who would outright say I'm a Democrat or I'm a Republican, they think of themselves in, in caricature, or excuse me, think of the other group in caricatures and overestimate sort of the average level of extremism in that group. And so, you know, Democrats think Republicans are more extreme than they are and vice versa. But the really bizarre part of it was that the people who spent the most time consuming political media and talking about politics online, both of those activities were correlated with greater misunderstanding. And so, um, you know, the people who were most likely to think about themselves as like well-informed and knowledgeable about politics were the most likely to think that the whoever it is that they opposed is more extreme than the vast majority of them really are. I think what what we've sort of been dancing around a little bit is um, that there that there are elements in place in society today which which foster the behavior that pushes people deeper into their own echo chambers. Essentially, algorithms that show you what you want to see, have you hear the things that you want to hear, and and people become more entrenched in their levels of thinking and. And potentially think that that um, there are more people who share their thinking as well. And in my mind, I can't, I can't disassociate, or well, that's not the right way to say it. I, I think it must be really difficult to maintain objectivity in either a social media platform or even a news organization when ultimately you are reliant on selling advertising. And, and you, your goal is to drive clicks and views because if you don't, you don't survive. You're no longer a news organization or a social media um, company. And so I'm kind of curious what your thoughts are on that of like, how, how, can, how can a platform or a news organization maintain objectivity 
and lose and 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 try to remove bias when they they're there to make money. Yeah. So I'd say three things in response to that. One is I would separate traditional and social media in that situation because for social media, and I've touched on this a little bit already, I think the incentives are at least social media as we know it right now. And who knows, you know, maybe someone will come up with some new model, but the main social media platforms that we have right now, the incentives are just inherently bad. It's very much about like wanting to get you spending as much time as possible in their platform. And that really does work with, by, you know, appealing to some of your worst instincts in many cases, I think, unless you are really deliberately telling the algorithm, I do not want this content that, you know, enrages or frightens me, it's going to bring you to that eventually because that, you know, gets you going and keeps you coming back. So that's, I think that's a a very, very difficult problem to handle. For traditional media, the situation is bad, but I don't think it's quite as hopeless. So the one thing I would say on the business side is you've touched on something that I think a lot of people don't really understand the extent of how bad it is. Um, You know, if we think back to the pre-internet age before Craigslist replaced classifieds and then, you know, Facebook Marketplace came along and thoroughly helped thoroughly kill them. Um, Think about, you know, when the local paper was, aside from billboards, like the only advertising game in town, you could at that, in that era, you know, as long as you were not printing things that were so offensive that it made no one want to read your paper, you know, there was a a strong editorial independence because those ads were a cash cow. I mean, media was very profitable. Like I'm not old enough to have been in the business at the tail end of like hyper profitable print media. But I have a online acquaintance who very early in her career, she's a little bit older than me, very early in her career, she got $6,000 to write a 1,000 word essay about how she's uncomfortable with her ears for a women's lifestyle magazine. Wow. You don't you don't get rates like, I mean, maybe a few <laughs> hyper elite people get rates like that today, but that you don't get rates like that today. Like the well, money is just not the way it used to be. How messed up were her ears though? I mean, <laughs> I mean I've looked at her in pictures and her ears seem extremely normal and fine. <laughs> okay, then this is ridiculous. But how she <laughs> felt though, how she felt so, was super Okay, important. so the, the money is gone from advertising, right? Like when the pandemic started, for example, I worked at the week and our traffic went through the roof because everybody wanted to know what was going on with the pandemic. But ad revenue, which was already, you know, always something you had to work hard to get, ad revenue plummeted. We were getting more views, but ad revenue went down because that was one of the first things people cut and, you know, the rates followed. And that's, um, that was a concentrated instance, but it's a, a problem all the time. Like the funding, the money is just not there the way it used to be. And, you know, you do have to pay journalists money um, so they can live. And there's this mindset among the reading public, and I fall prey to it myself, like, this idea that we are entitled to all of this journalism product for free and you're going to jump a paywall and you're not going to pay for this. And like, it's so offensive that they want to make me pay for this article. Um, But when you don't pay, that encourages outlets to figure out other ways to get money. And usually those other ways aren't good. So, I mean, I've become a little bitter about like, you know, everyone who complains about, oh, the journalism is so bad, but you won't put a dollar towards good journalism. Um, so as readers, I think we need to be very aware that, yeah, it is a business. It does have to make money. And if you want 
good product, you need to put your money where your mouth is and stop jumping all the paywalls. But the last thing I would say is that the question of objectivity is something of like an internal industry debate right now. And, you know, we think about like the mid-century, like mid-20th century objectivity norms. Um, A lot of that really was like a matter of principle. And there are a lot of journalists who still aspire to that today, especially on the reporting side. I'm not on the reporting side. I do opinion, so I don't have to pretend. Um, But there are a lot of journalists that, you know, really do aspire to that. And it's a sincere thing. But objectivity was also a business strategy. Like when you were working on that ad revenue model, you wanted to get the biggest audience possible. And the way to do that was to present that sort of apparently neutral, fact-based, objective reporting. Was it always actually objective? No. Um, It was a mixture. It was a mixture of like real principle and real efforts at objectivity and also a business strategy. The business strategy is different now because mass produced content like that is perceived as bland and uninteresting compared to the crazy stuff that people write because they're so desperate to get a few clicks and earn pennies in ad money. Um, so there, there isn't, there's a, the business side of it. And then there's also this internal industry debate around like is objectivity now that it's no longer the dominant business model, is it still the principle we should be pursuing? Should we be trying to, um, you know, more explicitly state the truth as we see it. Um, And I would say that for the average consumer, probably the the branch of this debate you're most familiar with is a debate around, should you say something is racist? This is like a big thing, especially in the Trump years that journalists debated. Like if the president says something, should you say he made a racialized comment? Or should you say he made a racist comment? The old objectivity model would say, say he made a racialized comment and then quote somebody who will call it racist, the new model would say, put racist right in the headline. Which grabs your eyes. And yeah. like instantly it certainly does. Pick. I mean, yeah. I mean, in, in both cases, it's a, there's a question that there is a principled argument for it. And there's also a business argument for it. Man, going, going. So I'm thinking of when you're talking about revenue streams for journalists, at what point do you, you've quote, you quoted Matt Taibbi, I think a couple of times in your book. Mm-hmm. Um, he's gone to Substack. There's a lot of mm-hmm. great journalism happening at Substack where they're kind of creating their own revenue stream where, cause like some of the art, you mentioned the articles, the paywalls and stuff like that. There's articles I want to read and mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't remember if it's, the Atlantic or New York times, but one of them will give you like three a month, three or four mm-hmm. articles a month. Yeah. And it locks you out. One of them is all the time. You get like that first paragraph and a half and it's like, Oh, subscribe for more. And that one drives me nuts. I'll love- tell you off the air. how to oh, get yeah, I mean, that. it's super anyway. frustrating. Yeah. Like, no, I, I super don't. And, and the, the Substack model is really interesting, but that's not something that's available to the vast majority of, of journalists, the people who, you know, are not writing right. opinion are, are doing like shoe leather reporting type stuff. And the way that it is supposed to work is you don't split those things up because people will come in to pay for some of those big names and then their work subsidizes, you know, the, the less glamorous, right. but, but very serious and important work. So I don't know. I mean, there's a sense in which this return to the subscription model is welcome, but I don't really think that that's the new way to pay. I, I don't, I don't know that that by itself can be the new way to pay for journalism. 
I wonder if Apple ruined the model for potential digital subscriptions because they... With the Apple News thing? No, actually, even before that, with just saying a song is only worth 99 cents and then streaming stuff for free, all of a sudden the value of digital content in general, I think it infected people's minds to think Mm. digital content is worth very, very little. Like even apps, apps, right? Forever, they were 99 cents the moment you saw an app over 99 cents. Even now, I still check myself. I'm like... Two ninety nine. Oh, oh no! I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I'm gonna, like, how good is this app, really? But I, I wouldn't be surprised if that has has impacted people's perception of of value when it comes to purchasing anything digitally, news included. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, like something that's really frustrating for me, like as a journalist, is sometimes I'll be trying to read something from some local outlet where they're the you know the first to the scene. They're reporting on something. It's not where I live. It doesn't make sense for me to buy a subscription to them. I just want to read about this one thing that happened where they live and there's not like a pay 50 cents to buy this one article option. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I don't know, maybe, you know, they don't want to hear from like the writers and editors over on the business side in my experience. Maybe they will figure out some way to tweak this before the whole industry goes under. I hope so. Sounds like that's your exit strategy, Bonnie. You just need to develop <laughs> that new system. <laughs> yeah. At the end of that, like one tenth of an article where it says, you know, unlock to, you know, subscribe and read the rest of it. Mm-hmm. There should be a little button that just says, you know, a quarter, a uh, 50 cents. Yeah. You just, something for just one you just thing. click on, I'm just a quick, cause people yeah. would click on, especially if you're already that. signed into your Apple pay or Google. Right. Yeah. That circum, I mean, that circumvents the, the system. However, you're also in somebody else's territory sometimes in terms of whatever you're And you know, if you've paid your 50 cents for 10, 12 articles at an outlet in a given month, it might click for you to, Oh, I should subscribe here. Yeah, Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I think we've done it. We did. We just did it. (laughs) Let the record reflect. Uh, Yeah. This is considered IP. So it's recorded. (laughs) We we're all together on this patent. (laughs) So I'm going to make, a short statement, and then I want each of you, maybe you guys first, but don't opine on it. Just give me your general thought, and okay. then Bonnie, general thought, and then feel free to expand, and you guys jump in. This is very exciting. Uh, partisanship is a disease. Are you generally... pot? Is that a positive statement for you? or like, Do you generally agree or generally disagree, and why? But first, you guys, do you generally agree or disagree? Uh, that partisanship is a disease? Yes. Whatever that means to you. I didn't explain it much, but. I mean, if it's a really bad disease, yes. <laughs> Partisanship is a problem. It, okay. It, it, so you generally agree. I agree. Okay. Andy? <laughs> I was trying to think of a, a positive version, and all I could think of was that, like, uh, that old 50s song. Uh, is this like the rockin' pneumonia and the or the boogie-woogie flu? That's an old... <laughs> It's a stupid example. Timely <laughs> reference. I know. <laughs> uh, positive disease. I, I, I will say, like most things, it depends. Oh God, cop out. I'm I'm making you sometimes make a binary. Okay, sometimes. it's it's more often more often than not, it's not it does it's not done in a positive light. Okay, um, but I don't when it's done positively, I don't mind people. Um, well, actually, let me back up. 
Why don't you define partisanship? That's wait, a good one. So I hold, knew you're gonna do okay, that. Before, before Bonnie, I answer it. Wait, before Bonnie before Bonnie answers, that in terms of partisanship, when I've had the conversation with people um you know, over the last year or so, and I tell them, you know, I, I voted for Donald Trump and they flip out and I'm like, and I voted for Barack Obama both times. I'm like, my, they just melt in front of me. Yeah, like, they don't know. Wait, they they were ramping up to destroy me, and then they're like, wait, uh, my my, and then their head just blows up. So when you say partisan partisanship is a disease, it is. I don't think I have it. So continue. Okay, Bonnie. What but do all think? those other people do. They all do all those <laughs> other ones. They have the disease. <laughs> exactly. What do you think, Bonnie? Uh, I would say lean agree. Um, I think it, it can be managed, uh, to continue the disease metaphor. I think it can be managed if you have a, a different constitutional system than we do. Um, I think the, you know, the, the first past the post winner take all basically forcing us to have two parties system that we have makes it a lot worse. And when you have, you know, true multi-party system, especially if you're getting up like above four or five, six parties, uh, certainly there could be scenarios where that just gives you more to hate. But in practice, I think a lot of times it, it at least deescalates things a little bit because it's not just, you know, forcing you into that binary where it's us or them. You think it's, did, were you um, commenting it can create more hate if there's more options? No. Oh, it's less good. options, like the two options. I think, was, no, I think, I think in more options, I think you could have a really poisonous scenario where, the, you know, instead of there being one opposition party for you to hate, you could have four or five opposition parties to hate, mm -hmm. right? Um, but I don't think that's typically how it works out. I, I'm saying I don't right. think it's like that's possible, but unlikely. More so, often, I think you end up with, um, you know, other parties that you probably 60, 70% of the population that are potential allies for you, at least on some issues. And so, you know, you, you don't love them, but it, it's not a big deal. Yeah, that's good. A, a recent example that comes to mind, like a little, well, I was going to spring this on you. It's like my little current partisanship test, but, um, I'll just explain it. So right now, inflation is high. Things are expensive. Um, and so my experience with a lot of my family, I come from a very conservative Republican family. And um, s side note, they all think, well, some of them think I've left the, re left the reservation and gone to like way on the other side just because I'm like, I'm like, no, I don't really like this and I don't like that. And I kind of want to pick and choose. And I, I think a lot of things are more complicated than left or right. And so in their interpretation, because of partisanship, that means definitionally I'm on the left. So mm -hmm. the inflation example I thought of is what's causing inflation. The easy answer is, well, you know, Biden's doing all this spending. Even the, the inflation reduction reduction act is like tons of governmental expense uh, spending, which you could probably argue might cause more inflation but that all aside, it's easy to jump on Biden if you're on the right, but you forget about Trump spending four trillion in two years or whatever it was. Like that, that that's going to have an effect too. But we're going to put that aside because from the right, Biden bad, Trump maybe you don't like him, but he's better if you're on the right. And so it's 
it's like you just forget about how your side has contributed to something. And you could pick any number of examples of, you know, Obama's, uh, the Affordable Health Care Act was probably loosely based on Romney's plan when he, that he imposed in Massachusetts. And so if, if, uh, Obama didn't get elected, you could probably, this is, we're in fantasy land a little bit. If Obama didn't get elected, you could probably argue that the Republicans would have done a version of Romney's plan that might've looked similar to Obama's and the Republicans would have liked it because it came from a Republican because you're on team Republican. And so you're not thinking about things as they are. You're thinking about them in terms of like my team is doing it or my team is against it. And therefore that's what I'm going to do. And that's, that's the problem because it like subverts your critical thinking. I think I'm more sophisticated than that, Zach. Oh, well, none of this was directed at you, Andy, obviously that goes without saying the listener knows if Scott were here, he would back me up. Uh, well, Joe Jorgensen, 2028. <laughs> 2028? I think she had her chance. Yeah. Yeah. We all voted for her, I think. No, yeah. not all of us. No, of us. We'll see. Yeah. Uh, Bonnie, so you're a Christian and you're yes. in journalism. I'm kind of curious. Uh, what are some of the more challenging things about being a Christian and being a journalist um, at the same time? I mean, not much, really. I think there's a there's a widespread perception among Christians that it would be difficult. Um, and maybe it would be different if I were, you know, in, in different newsrooms or in different roles. But in my experience, you know, it's especially writing in um, more secular publications. It's been an asset. You know, they like having someone with some uh, religion expertise who can decipher like what those evangelicals have gotten up to this time. Um, <laughs> you know, I think uh, if anything, I, I would would love to see more Christians getting into journalism for exactly that reason. Like Christians will get so upset at journalists for getting, getting us wrong. But, you know, maybe if there was a Christian in the newsroom who could pipe up and say like, Hey, you're like, you're misunderstanding what's happening here. We need to update our report. Like this isn't accurate maybe those mistakes would not happen so often. Um, the idea that there needs to be enmity uh, between the two groups is just, uh, I, I don't really see any basis for that. And I think that in many cases, um, Christians like the average American, and there's polling on this, the average American thinks that when journalists get things wrong, it's typically because the journalist is lying knowingly and on purpose to advance their preferred political agenda. And I would just say, like, you know, we can all think of examples of like famous fabulists, you know, your Stephen Glasses of the world. But those are extremely the exception. And they're typically exposed by other journalists. Um, they're extremely the exception. And the, the more run of the mill misunderstandings, especially, again, on the reporting side, where journalists are just, you know, clearly not understanding something about church culture or Christian belief or what have you, it's because there's, there's no Christian in the newsroom with them because Christians have eskewed the industry. And yes, outlets should do a better job of intentionally seeking out people with like theological knowledge, people who can be on a, an explicitly like religion beat because religion continues to be kind of a big deal in America. There is fault on both sides, but you can't hire a Christian journalist unless the Christian has become a journalist and is there to be hired. That's, um, that's important. I just I think, think <laughs> I, I, oh, I think of, uh, you know, the movie broadcast news. 
it's Bonnie. Doon. Uh, this is an old one. It's in the 1940s with yeah, Jefferson yeah, High okay, School. Okay, thanks. Uh, it's probably late. Okay, it's no, probably, I, it was I probably late. Seen that one. It's probably late 80s, early 90s. But it was a moment where they <laughs> they say stop stop the presses because someone uh, they have to have a wit they have to have a witness statement. They cannot run an mm. article because they just they don't have somebody to back it up. There is nothing. There's no leverage, mm-hmm. and the and the editor's like, I won't run it. Today, it's like mm-hmm. all of that has been thrown out the window, and it, it's like, is it going to make us money? Oh, run it and run it now, and dump you know dump those three other articles. Uh, I think that's that's true to some degree, um, but I would note two things. One is that most of the more traditional outlets do still have correction processes. And, you know, we can often make a strong case that the corrections are issued too late or too mm-hmm. obscurely and the damage is already done because the initial story, the wrong story goes out there and that's what more people hear. Yeah. Um, the processes are in place though. And that remains for me, a huge distinction between um some of the, the, the traditional and flawed, but, um, you know, more professional outlets that do have a greater regard for factual accuracy and a lot of the, uh, more partisan, more online outlets that are rising up to try to replace them. So it's not, it's not the case that the old guys are doing such a great job all the time because sometimes they're not, they do have these processes in place and that's important, but, I do think it is the case that the outlets coming along and saying, you guys suck. I'm going to do better. Extremely do not do better. They do much worse and they never bother with corrections. Mm-hmm. Um, and the second thing I would say is that defamation laws do still exist and they are, I think with the value, um, more narrowly tailored in America than in some other countries. Like in England, it seems like you can get sued for libel at the drop of a hat. Like you sneeze and you're in a libel lawsuit. Um, in the States, it you have to rise to a pretty high standard to, especially when we're talking about public figures, to get successfully sued for libel. Um, and I would say that's generally a good thing because of the kinds of abuses of stri- of libel laws that are, are looser again, like in the UK that, that happen with some regularity from my perspective, at least, but those do happen and you do see the corrective power of that from time to time, like, especially around the last election, there were a few outlets that had been accusing some, voting machine companies of some very nefarious stuff that was not in evidence. And the voting machine companies went to court and presented their, you know, the evidence. And all of a sudden those outlets suddenly found that they, you know, didn't want to talk about voting machine companies at all. And in fact, they were going to steer clear of that topic from here on out and, and post some correction notices on their websites. Um, and so, you know, as easy as it is to be cynical about that sort of thing, there are still systems in place, however rickety they may be sometimes that, that do provide some accountability there. I think. It just seems like we're at a point where you just come out and ask for forgiveness and they just run it and it gets ramrodded down for lack of a better term, uh, down the public's, uh, you know, eyes and ears. And it becomes the, the, 
you know, community water uh, spot where people are just uh, talking gibberish and it, it just turns into an exponential thing where it becomes the story on a story on a story. And next thing you know, it's running on ABC news and it, and there was no truth to it. And then it's like three weeks later, you know, like you're saying with the, uh, the voting machines, it's like, th this mm -hmm. seems to be just the norm now, even though there's things in place to, you know, Hey, we need to yeah. make sure that there's truth here. Um, or we've got some backing. It just seems to be off the rails right now. And as you said, in your, your pitch for the book, it's, um, you know, we're in times where we don't know what to believe because of mm -hmm. kind of, kind of what we know and what we've heard and what's been uncovered. And we're like in a, a, a very chaotic anarchist, uh, media world right now. And we're yeah, a little, and I little think, lost. I think not to blame the technology for everything, but I do think the technology is part of this. I was thinking about this the other day, like if it's, 1920 and some gonzo rag prints a lie about you two days later that's it's just gone right like most newspapers don't even didn't even keep archives of their own everybody else has like insulated their house with it it's in the garbage it's gone like the you know it's probably not going to get picked up from paper to paper to paper across the country um and so you know there was obviously it was still important to report things truthfully but there wasn't the same permanent digital record and that's mm. new and the way that things can still continue to spread um like there early on in the war in ukraine there was a story it was something about one of the nuclear power plants and i don't remember exactly what was what was wrong um at this point but one of the big um, news channels, I think it was CBS had misreported something and pretty quickly they, they got a, they got their article corrected, but the tweet, the original tweet that had gotten quite a bit of attention wasn't ever corrected, probably just by simple oversight, you know, nobody remembered, oh, we tweeted this with the original wrong thing. Right. And so that's still out there. Like last I looked, which was within the past month, it had been half a year, the, the wrong tweet is still up there. People will probably come across that and believe the wrong thing because they won't click the link and read the article. <laughs> um, they'll just go off the original tweet and that sort of thing. Like, even if you're well-intended and trying to follow the process and do the right thing, there's just so many little pieces of permanent digital record that are so easy to miss. Um, and I don't know how we would address that. I don't know if we'll figure out a way to do it. Um, well, that issue with a permanent trail. I imagine the 24-hour news cycle is a relatively new thing too, and mm -hmm. that can't that can't help the situation. I mean, I think in I would I would imagine that in some ways it exacerbates this problem because everyone every news outlet is reliant on speed because the mm -hmm. clock just never stops, continues to tick, and um, and so I I am curious about the impact this has had. Like I think of parallels. A number one, how like how does that connect to investigative journalism? What has that done to it? Has it just destroyed it for the most part? Because you just don't have time. Sorry, you don't have time to go investigate this because by the time you finally get to the bottom of it, it's too late and they've already moved on and you're you're old news, quite literally. Um, and then the other part, which is um, around uh, the sense that, and I wanted to kind of weave this in somehow. 
I, I would love to hear your your response on we live in a world right now with ultimate access to information and there's been I've read multiple statements and I think I believe it too we as humans are not designed to hold this much like this level of news of world news it's never it's never before in the history of the world if humans ever had to like try to intake this much news and at some level like try to manage the woes of the world in in some way right like that's another way to think about it i'm kind of curious from a journalist perspective how do you, how do you think about that and what what do you think is journalism's responsibility in that Yeah. I mean, as far as the investigative journalism goes, I don't, I could not say with confidence, is there more of it or less of it than it used to be? But it it goes back to, and the question of responsibility, the journalist's responsibility also goes back to this like looming question of what is our business model? Because if you want to do an eight month investigation, right, you need to know that what the revenues are going to be for those eight months. Can I afford to have this writer working on this one thing over that huge span of time and pay their full salary for that? Like, these are questions that like for most outlets, except the really big guys, the answer is no. Um, And so I don't, I don't know what we do about that. As far as the 24 hour cycle in the sense that we need to um, the sense that we, we are not equipped to take in this information, this much information. Um, I think that issue of like, we've been mostly talking about quality of media, but I think that issue of quantity is huge. Uh, and this is like a big focus of my book, which is you sh- <laughs> one of the recommendations I make is like, you, you don't need to take in probably as much, especially political media as you're taking in. Um, and, like for most people spending, you know, 10 minutes, half an hour at most on the news each day is, is more than enough um, to, to sort of like do your duty as a citizen or whatever. Like it's just, it's not healthy. It's not normal. It's not reasonable to spend the amount of time that a lot of us spend on this sort of thing. And I'm, you know, obviously in a somewhat different position because it is my job, but like, think about it. It'd be weird if I, spent hours every day on your job. So like, why are you spending hours every day on my job? Don't you have better things to do? <laughs> um, in, in the book, I, I shared a quote from uh, a letter that C.S. Lewis wrote and he wrote it in 1946. So right after world war two, it's not like he is naive about how bad things can be in the world. Um, but he said, I think each village was meant to feel pity for its own sick and poor whom it can help. And I doubt if it is the duty of any private person to fix his mind on ills which he cannot help. This may even become an escape from the works of charity we really can do to those we know. A great many people do now seem to think that the mere state of being worried is in itself meritorious. I don't think it is. Um, And I think that's as true now as it was then. It is not actually a good thing. It's not a good use of your time. It's not um, making you more virtuous. It's not making you more Christ-like. It's not doing anything good to be spending hours each day thinking about faraway problems, which you can do nothing to affect. Um, Raising awareness is not inherently a good thing. Posting about stuff that even very important stuff is not inherently a good thing. Um, And I think it does become 
maybe not even always a distraction from real works of charity that we can do, like, like Lewis says, but even just, you know, talking to our family members in our own house because there's another tweet to do instead. <laughs> that's really encouraging to hear. I appreciate you sharing that, Bonnie. I think that's, I think that's, some, those are important words that we all need to intake because you're right. It, it, it will weigh on you in one way or another. And for something that you can't even affect, um, you know, why, why expend the energy and put yourself in such a hard place? So thanks for sharing that. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, man, we're, I think we're just about out of time. Yeah. Get to that prayer. Do you, do you want to say something about <laughs> the Aquinas prayer? Like what, Sure. I don't know if you want me to read or if you want to read it, if you have it handy. I oh, have yeah. it right here. We should have her read it. That'd be cool. Do you have I mean, why don't why don't you read it since uh, but we've just heard about your your reading of it. I think That's it's true. probably fresher in your mind. Yeah, probably. Zach doesn't know how to read. <laughs> I barely though. know how to read. <laughs> but uh and then let me know like af- after this. This is something that I don't know if it started with this book. Like, how do you stumble upon this prayer? Like, what does it mean to you? And why do you think other, do you think other people should uh, dive into it? Um, it's from the chapter, A Practical Epistemology, which we didn't really dive into that. That's a big section of your, or a big part of your book is uh, how do we know what we know and all that stuff. But um, creator of all things, this is where like in this low light in my plus 40s, it's like, God, I need glasses to bear with me. Creator of all things, uh, true source of light and wisdom, lofty origin of all being, graciously let a ray of your brilliance penetrate into the darkness of my understanding and take from me the double darkness in which I have been born, in an obscurity of both sin and ignorance. Give me a sharp sense of understanding a retentive memory and the ability to grasp things correctly and fundamentally grant me the to- uh, talent of being exact in my explanation and the ability to express myself with thoroughness and charm point out the beginning direct the progress and help in completion through Christ our Lord. Amen. Thomas Aquinas, a prayer for students. Hmm. Um, yeah, so I, I don't remember exactly where I first came across it. It was within the last, I don't know, two, three years, relatively recently. And I thought of it again when I was working on this book. And for a lot of the, the work of the book began uh, praying it every morning before I got to work. Um, and part of it was, uh, you know, just it is so suited for it's, it says it's prayer for students but it's so suited for writing or i think any kind of communicating where you're, you're trying to get your point across to people and to do so well um and i i particularly liked the particularly like the line about the, the the double darkness of both sin and ignorance that that sometimes we misunderstand things because we we just don't know. And sometimes we misunderstand things because, you know, we're engaging in motivated reasoning. We're looking for what we want mm. to see, not what's actually there. Um, and so I started praying it uh, as, a, as a practice to sort of, um, you know, in hopes that it would be a way to, to 
move into the humility and the uh, like intellectual honesty that it models. Um, and, you know, not every, not every writing day is like you're coming to it at your absolute best. And so um, my, my hope was to sort of both in that, that specific day to use it to reorient myself to what I was aspiring to, but then also on the broader scale to, to think about what sort of, of person, what sort of writer I was becoming and, and how my work would be, um, beyond this one book. Awesome. Thank you for spending your time with us. I, w- I wish we had more time, but hopefully we'll do this again the next time you have something, or maybe I'll come across an article and reach out to you like, Hey, we, we have to talk about this thing. So <laughs> we'll see. Yeah, that'd be great. Um, and maybe next time we c- could, we give you like a small piece of homework. It's just listening to like one episode of one podcast. It it's, uh, <laughs> can you know which one I'm going to say? Wh- oh, well, <laughs> I'm curious. So, uh, a few of us listen to this podcast called no agenda. And it's with Adam Curry and John C. Dvorak. John C. Dvorak. Adam Curry invented podcasts. He also was, you know, of MTV news fame. If you remember him from the eighties. Anyway, the, the purpose of their podcast is media. It's media deconstruction is the purpose of their podcast. It's fascinating. Mm. I, we obviously listen to it in one context. I would be so interested to hear what a journalist thinks when they hear any given episode and seeing how you have a podcast that's designed to do media deconstruction, approach it. Mm. It would be, it would be uh, interesting. So maybe sometime in between now and the next, uh, you know, six years when we do our, <laughs> our follow up episode. <laughs> yeah. I noted. Um, so Bonnie Christian, my phone went to sleep. Is it bonniechristian.com? Yes. Yes. Bonnie that Christian is, with that a K. A... K-R-I-S-T-I-A-N. Bonnie Christian. Also bonniechristian.substack.com too. Uh, okay. So oh, I, cool. do combine yeah, those. I do, but it's free. I'm not making money off it. It's like yet. mostly, <laughs> it's mostly about my book right now. I don't know exactly yet what I'm going to do with it after the book is out. Um, but near term plans do include for subscribers, like a Q and a book club sort of thing. So like, as you're reading, send me in whatever questions you've got and I will try to answer them all. That's cool. Awesome. Yeah, We'll have all those links in the show notes, but thanks for coming on and appreciate your time and looking forward to the next time or whatever you have to come or something on my words, but (laughs) all until next time, (laughs) until next time. Christianity Today. Um, reason. Reason. Mm-hmm. BonnieChristian.com. All right. Thank you, awesome. Bonnie. Yes. Thanks, All Bonnie. Right. Thank you, guys. Appreciate it. Talk to you later. Are we still recording? Yeah, we yeah, are. We Excellent. Are. Okay. All right. Now let's shit on Scott. Just All kidding. right. <laughs> um, let's be good Christians. Did you like how I hit her in the mouth at the end? I'm kidding. Bonnie, if you're listening to this, uh, getting... It- Getting uh, punched in the mouth is what they call hitting the right. mouth. Hitting the mouth. Hitting the mouth is what they call uh, it when someone introduces you to a new podcast. So if you end up listening to it, then well, like the rest of us, to that podcast, to that podcast. Anyway, sorry. The beauty of no agenda, since you mentioned it, um, 
is not necessarily agreement with one of the two hosts on how what they think about the media they're playing. The beauty of it is that you hear so much media you would never hear from oh, yeah. normal sources from all over the world. So that's my favorite part about it. And it's entertaining in general. They're yeah. generally funny. And you know, even if I disagree, it's like Yeah, the breadth the breadth of the amount and the depth in which they go on topics is it does it justice when it comes to the topics they bring up and nobody does that to just skim over the surface and you know all right we got some clicks we got some hits uh how are you boys doing i'm great you Wait, know when, I'm, I'm like a six out of five i mean I, I feel like i'd I like did a fecal transplant with Jeff or something and I imparted, I got all of his sickness what? out of five and I have it now. Yeah. You don't know about Fe- that fecal transplant. You got bad bowels. Things are going downhill real quick. You got you bad have taken on the spirit of Scott. Yeah. Wait, hey, is that a thing? Fecal transplant. You never heard of that? <laughs> nope. You got bad gut biome. Put Get- somebody else's poo in your anus. What? <laughs> <laughs> we're, we are going to edit that out no. right after leaving Bonnie. That's where we Apologies went. to Bonnie Christian. I I do appreciate Bonnie. I, I feel like she's, I think, well, I was going to say she's a woman after my own heart. And what wh- I think it's more like discovering somebody that I feel simpatico with in that trying to speak to a lot of people. She's not, I didn't ask her if she's a partisan directly. I would have, if we had more time, like, I don't get this the the feeling that she is like, hey, I'm on this team. Even though she does opinion, like sure. everything she does is thoughtful. So even if you disagree, it's like, okay, I see where you're coming from. And uh, so much these days is like, oh my God, you're not where I am. You're not like standing on this platform right next to me. Then, you know, F off and we can't be friends. Yeah. I'm I'm hesitant to talk about Bonnie without her in in the <laughs> me too well, figurative, I'm actually, figurative I'm, room. I'm running, I'm running, weird. Yeah, that's, running. that's why I asked how you guys are doing. Oh yeah. well, I just didn't want to answer for in real. general. So a poop joke. Oh, in general, I don't know. You can answer. How are you doing? I I started off the podcast broke. by saying I, I'm broke. My daughter started volleyball, and uh, yeah, that was uh, things went very quickly in that direction. I'm like, why is, you know, why did this, how did this happen? Um, so, uh, volleyball is very, how uh, did volleyball happen? Kids grow no. and they get into no, no, no. things. And my daughter went from so- soccer to pandemic to, oh, I guess I'll just play softball to, I don't even like softball. My friend asked me if, if I wanted to come and try out for her, uh, her, her club program. And we go out there, there's 50 girls out there all whom have played volleyball and uh, for a long time. Yeah. My daughter coaching. Yeah. My daughter, 13 years old, eighth grade goes out there. Good athlete, short, you know, but we're athletes. We're an athletic family. And they're like, Oh, you've made uh, the team. We're like, wait, what? Your money's green. Just like theirs. (laughs) Yeah. But there were plenty of people who were like, Nope, take a hike. Perfect and point, we're like, Andy. what just happened? I'm looking at my daughter. I'm like, oh, we just got a phone call. You, you made the team. She's like, what? And they're like, and it's $6,000. Oh. Yep. Yep. And I'm like, and that, that doesn't include like 
everything outside oh of gosh, like the tournaments and practices and stuff. I'm Does like, it include HGH or steroids? <laughs> I, I don't know, but good I, question. you're not getting a good I, deal. I'm, I'm assuming I just go in the front door come uh, this week and they're like, and the loan officer, it's like buying a car and the loan yeah. officer is down in the other window. Oh my like, gosh. You've got to be kidding me. You try to negotiate. They go like, well, yeah, I can go ask my manager. I'll be back. I'm going to see if they can get you a better deal. <laughs> you know, she's not that good yet. How about like four? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not. She's just starting. I, I, I sent, I sent the, the head of the, the program. I'm like, so, um, that's a lot. That's a lot of money. <laughs> like, uh, I'm like, all she, of a sudden Brian Regan came out. Of yeah, <laughs> she just started playing volleyball a month ago. We've been playing Pepper in the backyard for two or three weeks to kind of like, okay, because she was going to some of their. Hey, is she, that where you throw try to get Pepper in each other's eyes? That's right. Just like throw Pepper in your noses. <laughs> get the, you grab the a chew. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, <laughs> it uh, should be called a chew. I have no idea. My wife and I are still. We're, we're laying in bed in the dark going, wait, how did this happen? How did our daughter, who has never played, just made a competitive volleyball program? And it wasn't like the Was third this during team. the afterglow? <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Instead of basking in the glory of an excellent lovemaking session, it's like, oh, shit, money, volleyball, sports. <laughs> <laughs> I oh, am just... Man. I am floored by how much uh, Joe Biden has made volleyball cost. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Obama. <laughs> um, I do have a couple of feedback notes. Oh. Ooh. Both well, good. All right. I don't know if you guys want to. Uh, Should I go pee first or? Uh, no, we can land. I mean, how, how, we got how long can I hold it? How long can you hold it? <laughs> I think we have, 11, we min- a couple more minutes. I think we have I, 11 minutes before we uh The more taxi. that I laugh, the less I could hold it. <laughs> um, okay, well, let's just do this and we'll see what happens. So this is good. This goes back. The way we record episodes, sorry. There's multiple in the queue, so we get to it when we get to it. Sorry, listeners. That's my fault. Um, well, before it was your fault, it was my fault. Because the same thing was it would happen. We'd have episodes, and they just wouldn't get released. It sure as heck wouldn't be, uh, or sure as hell wouldn't be Scott's fault. Oh, sure as no. Um, Instagram. Hmm. Um, reacting to a post, going back a little bit. I think. Well, well I'm just gonna read the post, and we'll do the math. Kaonda Bros Bibles and beer. This is from FF underscore Hugo underscore Stiglitz. <laughs> Stiglitz? <laughs> this is so weird. Okay, I up Bros Bibles and Beer. So I was listening to your podcast about Hanegraaff's conversion on my way back from Monterey. So if he's talking about Hank Hanegraaff, who converted from... What? I think he... I wasn't even around. I don't think you were. I wasn't even born. But I appreciate people are binging, going back. They discover the podcast oh my and they gosh. dive deep into the treasures that is and was Bros, Bibles, and Beer. What is God's treasures? <laughs> what is good? So Hanegraaff converted away from sort of a evangelical, what a Protestant, some version of evangelicalism. Now he converted to Eastern Orthodox. Which doesn't often happen. Oh, Usually it's I like do Protestant, remember this. Right, the atheist. other way. Right. Sure. <laughs> um, Go. He'll be back. 
that was Hannah Graf. Uh, wanted to clarify something. One of you made a comment that in Catholicism, they teach that the priest is a mediator between the believer and Christ. I was a 30-year evangelical before I became Catholic. Whoa. Stiglitz is Catholic. And also was told this about the, the Catholic Church, among other misconceptions. When I went through the RCIA, which is probably the Royal Catholic Institutional Anonymous. I'm More money-making memberships. No, it's becoming a Catholic. He became a Catholic. America. We were taught that this is a common belief among Protestant brethren. I like him saying brethren. Usually it's the evangelicals that are like, oh, he used to be Catholic, but now he's a Christian. Hey, we only but have 11 minutes to this all land the plane. Keep I appreciate going. that. Brethren. Brethren. Uh, because of the sacramental nature of the early church and the Catholic church, there needs to be a facilitator, quote unquote, for the sacraments. The Eucharist, rite of reconciliation, marriage, and others, our God is a God of order and chose to institute the priesthood to ensure these are done with the sacredness they deserve. So even, said the Catholics. Even Martin Luther, well, he's a Catholic, believed this as he uh, held to transubstantianism in contrast to Zwingili. God. <laughs> Did you say Swahili? I'm, I'm sorry. I was taught and believed that we pray and even consume our Lord as the early church believed. John 6, 54 and 56. Prayer hand emojis. He went on to say, I listened to this. Well, actually, it, well, any thoughts on okay, that? Is he questioning whether... He's just saying the, misconception the, on... it that That is the having grown up in the Catholic church... And having seen Father Stu on, uh, you know, uh, Prime Video or whatnot, you know, I know the truth. Uh, priests are there for the um, congregation to go in and speak to the priest in confessional so the priest can then convey that to God. Yeah, and that's an interesting distinction because he's saying his focus was making sure the sacraments were done with respect, the sacraments are sacred, making sure it's done properly. But he didn't say anything about like why the need for confession. Can your sins be forgiven if you don't go to confession? Those Would, sacraments all came afterwards. I mean, you can't all, connect. Those are all, those are all a significantly AD instituted rituals. Like, I guess I'm struggling to think of where those those rituals existed. As he, he kind of defined them as as like saying, "Hey, this is what God God wanted these rituals in in place." I don't know where that. Yeah, I'm so, struggling to think. But Stiglitz, in, but in terms of also priesthood of believers communicating, no, you cannot ask for forgiveness outside of in the Catholic Church. You cannot ask for forgiveness outside of. The confessional. Then the, I'm fucked. To the priest. That's that's it. You should go confess that. Rules and regulations. Oh, shit. Yeah, it's oh, great. Again. That one too. God dang it. Yep. Tw- that's close enough. God. You thought it. 12A part three, subset two. That's it. Thanks, uh, Stiglitz. Stiglitz. I yeah. like the name too. And also he said, Que onda? 
All right. Yes. Next. I imagine the, the whole time. Can I just read it just a little bit in his in the voice that I imagined it would have been? Because he said Kayonda, which makes me think maybe he's a Hispanic American. It's a picture. So you, oh, yeah, yeah. You're a Kayonda brought Bibles at beer. Wait, wait. <laughs> Sorry. Wait, the Hispanic American? Kayonda is, is... From Hispania? Uh, that's Spanish. Is that like, what's up? Yeah, it's what what's up. Kayonda. Um, but uh, I will say this. The Beck had a song. Kayonda Wero. Yeah, which means what's up, white boy? But that's because of That's his, a good album. That's a very good album. Orale. 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 Different Orale. Orale Vato. Is it Kayonda? Is I thought that was on Orale. Orale. Different album. Oh shit. You might be right. Maybe. I, if only there was a device. Oh well. I don't have it with me. Next. Okay, next. All right. Does it matter if the screen's making weird noise? Same guy, but uh listen to your podcast. It got heated for sure. It also solidified my decision I made to leave evangelicalism a few years ago for Catholicism. Because you um, evangelicals are always arguing? Oh, no. Maybe. Oh, look at that. You drove him. Evangelical, evangelicalism is deconstructing as it did at the Vineyard Church. Oh, now he's referring to Vineyard. So he is binging our podcast. Because um, we did talk about Vineyard Church. Way different episode than Hank Hanegraaff. I was a member at the Vineyard Church. 30 oh. years of being evangelical led me to the realization that Jesus established one authoritative church and everything else is a facsimile. Wow, shots fired. So I said, thanks for listening. And then he said, no problem. Matt sounded like, oh, Matt Stefano. This is more recent. Okay. Sounded like many of the voices I heard before I left Protestantism. Truth has become relative as Christians have become more narcissistic but a wise man once said, there's nothing new under the sun. Peace. I like that feedback. That's great. Thank you, Hank. And I don't want to dodge what he says. I feel like sometimes we don't have enough time to Hugo. really talk about it. Hugo. Hugo. Hank Hanegraaff was mentioned, so. That's what it was. Sorry, Hugo. Not enough time? What? All the H's. Sometimes we get feedback and we don't get to uh, have the time to respond to it. Yeah, maybe next week we'll talk about... Um, well, no, but I'm not going to mention anything. We could talk about we could talk about that though, just for a minute, at least. Oh man, listener Zach almost fell backwards <laughs> in his stool. I'm riding a drum throne right now. <laughs> not figuratively, he literally is <laughs> in his stool for his fecal arrangements. Yeah, fecal arrangements. I would love to know what Hugo means by Christ established one church. I think that's an interesting statement. Yeah, I, us, I it's don't not a building. Thank you, Hugo. One of the things that you comes are up, welcome. So, so just thinking about Mr. Stiglitz, um, and something that Bonnie touches on in the book, and also Jonathan Haidt, who was mentioned before, like in sociology and psychology, a conservative mind is some someone that cl- uh, really likes control, like order and authority. They respect authority and they respect order, and so I'm guessing his mind is more bent in a conservative way. This is not a dig. It's like, no. this is the way generally people that end up politically conservative really cl- uh, cherish authority and con- order. Certainty. I keep wanting to say control. That's part of it. So, but. And there is some truth in what he says. There's oft, oftentimes I think I will encounter. That's true either way. Narcissism can can show up in the deconstructionist, and it can show up in the absolutist. Why'd you look at me? 
I, I looked at your knee. I was looking down. Because uh, your knee is... I put a knee in my eye. I am a knee. Dyslexia. <laughs> uh, it can it can show up in either one of those. And, and it is... Oddly enough, I think in the deconstructionist, it is this this weird belief that what well, on either side, I just keep thinking of Jordan Peterson's like words in my head the whole time going like, what the hell do you know? <laughs> <laughs> Which is true for both sides. Like, right. What the hell do you know? Um, it almost should be like the, the button you put on anything you want to say, like, okay, let me think, what the hell do I know? Why do I want to say this? Yeah. Here's a statement that I get, but at the end of the day, what the hell do I know? Right. I'm one person with one perspective that's trying to make sense of the world around them, and I could be wrong, and that's okay. But at least I can freely admit that maybe I'm wrong, and this is the way that I see it now, and I might change my mind later. That's okay for you. It's not okay for me. I'm, I can't be wrong. Yeah, I know. Good talk, Jeff. I don't know what to say. You're still thinking about fecal transplant, aren't you? <laughs> No, I I don't even remember what you said. I was thinking about something else. Sorry. Oh, what? I apologize. The afterglow? No, not at all. Pre-glow? No. Gross. Current glow. I think I was. Uh, I got on a tangent as you guys started to talk about the the topic, which was <gasps> what? God dang it! Oh, sorry. I didn't no, didn't, the second the the I second. I feel like you just threw an alley oop. Sorry, I just, the I just second. Ran past no, it. the second feedback. And and I, I was hoping you would refresh my memory because that's where my tangent was going. Catholicism or yes, Catholicism. Oh, it was back narcissism. to narcissism. Uh, no, it was back to the certain. I believe it's certainty that people want. They don't want to be in a discussion. This is like okay, uh, God is God, and that's what I've been told. And I show up, and I. As, as my son, uh, my youngest son, he went to church with a uh, family this past weekend, and they went to a Catholic church. And when we picked him up, uh, my wife asked him, "Oh, did you go to church?" "Yeah, I did." It was so weird. Like I had to like kneel on some piece of wood. <laughs> like that is, that is like yes. And why do we do that? Usually with padding. Yeah. Ask all the people in there, why do you do that? Why do you stand up at certain times? Why do you sit down? Why do you sit and wait? Why do you say what you say at certain times? Because that's the world I grew up in. It's a very uh, certain rules-based way of doing your faith. And on top of it, you're not even looking to Jesus. You're looking to his mother. And, and, but there's certainty in that, in all of it, in the, in our church, in the evel, in, well, evangelical church, it is open to interpretation and discussion. You cannot sure. do that in the Catholic church. I feel like I want to, um, most Catholics would have a comeback that would, yes, Jesus mother is involved, but ultimately it's Jesus life and death and resurrection. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now at the hour of our death. Amen. That I, was like a prayer over and over and yeah, over. And sure. that was like the like our Father who art in heaven, like the Lord's Prayer and the Hail Mary. Like there is no Hail Mary in when you think of evangelicalism. There just isn't. 
Maybe there should be. It would get them to focus not on themselves and somebody else. Maybe for uh, maybe the next episode, we could talk about, is it biblical to have a relationship with Jesus? Oh, that that's treading on sacred ground for many evangelicals. Am I right, guys? Uh, we're looking forward to that on the next Bros. Bibles of Beer. Be. <laughs> <laughs> you thought I had more there than you. <laughs> you're still you're stuck in the voice. You can't get out. Okay, what are, you guys, what are you guys consuming, Andy? Uh, I wasn't ready for that question. Go to Zach first. Zach, and then okay. A couple things. Now, I'm, I would not, I like, okay. Wow. That was the ultimate caveat. We're going to edit you that 10 no seconds Coldplay. I'm not a huge Coldplay song. There are a few songs that I love. There's You're not a huge Coldplay song. Those Coldplay are the words fan. you said. Coldplay song. I have a Coldplay song to talk about. We're going to edit the last 20 seconds Dude, out. Dude, how many beers did you drink tonight? I thought I saw you drink one and a half. What happened? One and a half, but Scott, who is not here, gave me a packet. He said it would enhance my communication skills, but I'm pretty sure I'm roofied. <laughs> I put it in the beer. Oh. Um, <laughs> roofied I try to talk. I need to slow down. I try to talk too fast. And my brain can't keep up. Um, Not a fan of Coldplay. Also alcohol. I love a few Coldplay songs. I would love to go see them in concert. That hasn't happened. Um, but I wouldn't call myself a fanboy. There is a song on their, I believe it's their latest release called Colatura that is 10 minutes long. Oh, yeah. And I invite people to get a good set of headphones or even better. Like Andy's house, my house, you have the good bookshelf speakers that you can turn up louder than you want to, like a little louder than it's comfortable. Turn off the lights, lay down, close your eyes, and put that song on. And that song is an experience. There's like elements of Bowie. I mean, there's so many, that song goes so many places in 10 minutes, Mm. and it makes me think about God makes me think about the infinite. And uh, most times when I do it in that context, in the dark, listening loud, um, I get a little weeby and it's great. And so that, cause that happened recently for that album came up on a Spotify playlist or something. So nice. I was reminded of it. It's not super new. Uh, as far as television content, the Lord of the Rings show on Amazon, uh, I am going to power through and finish it eventually. No spoilers. I haven't watched it yet. No spoilers. It's horrible. It is beautiful. This cinematography is absolutely exceptional. There are some people in the woke police or the people that are like against the woke that are like, oh my gosh, there's brown elves. There's a little bit of that out there on the on the uh, internet. <laughs> brown elves? There are brown elves. Brown skin, skin tone. It got caught None of this fecal has, has to do with anything I'm going to say. No uh, you might, you probably should edit that one out or email Scott at bros. <laughs> 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 but, uh, so beautiful. It's really well done. Cinematography wise. Um, the casting I am not confident in with Elrond and Gladriel. Gladriel right. is supposed to be like 2000 years <laughs> old at this point, And she <laughs> seems to be angry at everything all the time. You think she would have gained wisdom in those, uh, couple of millennia, uh, but I'm going to stick with it because the universe of Tolkien is pure magic. What about you, Jeff? What are you consuming? 
Well, the past three days in my neighborhood, I live right on the uh, plateau above the Pacific Ocean and Doheny State Beach was running Ohana Festival this past weekend. And we hear Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Last night, we, (laughs) or Friday night, we hear um, uh, Eddie Vedder. And then Joe Biden. Stevie Stevie Nicks on Saturday. And then Pink for three hours. Oh, that's a lot of pink. Pink went for seven to ten. I bet she was red. It was she was doing she did some covers. She did some cover uh stuff from the seventies. It was off the hook. And we're like, this is amazing. And it's just the volume just shoots right off the ocean up to our neighborhood. And it was fantastic. Um outside of that. Not a much. Um, it's just been a very uh, relaxing, sports-oriented uh, week. Just been consuming sports and uh, listening to live music from afar. That's good. I like that. Yeah. I also imagine Joe Biden covering uh, Pearl Jam songs. Now in my mind, sounds awesome. <laughs> yeah. There's a flow. There's a flow. It's, even yeah, I'm still alive. What? what? <laughs> no, 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 I'm still, not still alive. What, that, what does that even mean, man? It's, I'm still alive. Smell the alive. I smell it. Can you smell it? I smell it. <laughs> That's $11 gasoline. Hear me spoken. <laughs> Say Amy. Jeremy. No, 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 I was racking my brain. The only uh, I've just—it's been a lot of good family and work have been the two main things that I've been consuming here. So, lots of good intentional family time, and we just got back from Palm Springs. Shout out to Art Greco, his stomping grounds, and we will go visit him once he's back from his fabulous uh, world tour. And uh, I brought two books with me to read, and I cracked open one of them and read a little bit of it, Jordan Peterson's 12 Rules. And then I brought Malcolm Gladwell's Outliers to read again. I've read it before. Bragger. But I didn't read it. It's small. It's quick. But it's really cool. Have you read it? No, but I've I've hear, heard so many potters talk about it in a way that... It's cool. Yeah. It's really cool. Uh, it, it's Did you ask if, short. if we've read Outliers? Oh, I'm a school teacher. I don't read. Yeah, it makes sense. Uh, as a school teacher, you should read it because then you'll find out how many kids you can help and what age bracket they need to fall into to where they'll really be successful. This So 12 rules, the original, not 12 more rules. No, just the original one. 12 rules got so good or it got so that much attention is that way better. Do 12 more. Yeah, yeah I'm like, oh, 24, better. that's too much. Now, additional, the 36 after is like his his next one. The 19th rule is amazing. But But I will say, for as much heat as he gets from certain segments, um, the rules regarding take care of your shit before you try to take care of other people's shit, which is my paraphrase of clean your room, it's priceless. It's so good. You don't... My room can be a mess. Ask my wife. My laundry piles up. It's clean, so I know I can just pick it up and put it on, know. you know, in my defense. But when I do take the time to actually clean my physical room... You feel good, don't you? It changes things. You feel There's good. There's a real thing happening. It's not rocket science. I know. 
Yeah. Uh, all right, uh, listener, thank you for tuning in. If you enjoyed what you like, please share it with at least one other person this week. And if you want to get in touch with us on all the socials at Bros Bibles Beer on email at Bros Bibles Beer at gmail dot com, and if you want to leave us a voicemail, anchor.fm slash bb pod. And I would say there are three B's there. I know that wasn't clear. Um, yeah. Even if you didn't enjoy it, share it. That's what I say. And we can still get Apple reviews, Apple podcasts. Leave us a review. Click the star on Spotify. Listen on Spotify. Click the star. Give us five stars. Let's do that. Come on. <laughs> we your, need some more reviews. Your I'll example take some more reviews. is perfect, Zach. Where you, it's like having a drink of a beer or a glass of wine. You're like, oh my God, this is horrible. Here, I'm going to tell this. my friend about it. <laughs> you got to try this. This tastes like shit. Here, put this in your mouth. <laughs> Go listen to that podcast. It's horrible. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>